on October 14, 1989, Dick Hoyt ran 26.2 miles, he swam 2.4 miles, and he bicycled 112 miles to complete the Hawaiian Ironman triathlon competition. And now, for most of us, that would be an incredible feat. I know I couldn't do it. But what really made this amazing was that Dick did it with his 126-pound son in tow. His son, Rick, was born with spastic quadriplegia and cerebral palsy. For the first 11 years, Rick was not able to communicate with the world outside of himself. At the age of 11, his parents took him to Tufts University in Boston and they invented a computer program for him, which of course is my favorite part of the story, a computer program that allowed him to communicate for the first time. It would show letters on the screen and whenever the letter, the next letter that he was building in a sentence came along, he would bump his head against the sensor and it would lock that letter in and then he would go to the next letter. And this way he would build sentences. And his first sentence was, Go Bruins. <laughs> Turns out he was a sports fan, who knew? <clears throat> At the age of 15, Rick asked his dad if they could run together in a charity run for an injured lacrosse player. And his dad said, well, um, maybe, I don't know. His dad described himself as portly at that time. And uh, so he said, we can try, but I don't know if we'll be able to succeed or not. But they did. They ran the entire five-mile race together. And afterwards, Rick carefully spelled out a sentence that changed his father's life. He said, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped anymore. Can you imagine the effect that that statement had on his dad? From that time on, his dad began to look for opportunities to give him that same experience, that same feeling. In fact, they have run over a thousand races together since that time. Why does his dad do it? Why does he put himself through all of that training, all of that time, all that effort, all that pain, all that expense? Why does he do it? He does it to see the smile on his son's face. That, my friends, is love. Such love is one of the most powerful forces in all of the world. It was love like that that allowed Jacob to work for Rachel. Remember that? How many years? Seven long years, and, and what does the Bible record? The Bible says, they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing, the power of love? Love is the great motivator. Love transforms the should-do or the must-do into the get-to. Right? Yes, God has commanded us to do these, these things, and we should do them. And yes, He is God. We must do them. But what does He want us to? How does He want us to obey? With a get-to attitude. We get to do this because we love Him. Love transforms our attitude. No wonder, then, that God wants us to love Him. Right? What is the first and great commandment? Thou shalt love who? The Lord your God, with what? All your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. God just wants us to love Him. And this is why, because love transforms our whole experience. No wonder then that the first fruit of the Spirit is love, and the second fruit is joy. No wonder then that this is one of the most important questions that you and I as Christians can ask ourselves. 
How can I really relish God? How can I love Him and enjoy Him to the fullest? My friends, for the first 30 years after my baptism, I did not have that experience. It took me 30 years after my baptism to fall in love with Jesus. And it was because I had a fundamental misunderstanding of some, some basic aspects of the Christian life and how they worked. So we're going to look a little bit at how that works this afternoon. If Christ be in us the hope of glory, we shall discover such matchless charms in him that the soul will be enamored. But a profession without that deep love is what? Mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. Isn't that amazing? The difference, the transformational difference that love brings? My friends, the devil would have us believe that the Christian life is a self-denying, self-sacrificing drudgery. But that's not true. The Christian life is one of self-denying, self-sacrificing joy. Yes, the self-denial's there. Yes, the self-sacrificing's there. But it is a love relationship that makes it joyful. And that's what we need. If we love Jesus, we shall love to live for him, to present our thank offerings to him, to labor for him. The very labor will be light. For his sake, we shall covet pain and toil and sacrifice. We shall sympathize with his longing for the salvation of men. We shall feel the same tender craving for souls that he has felt. This is the religion of Christ. If we <clears throat> love Jesus, if we only love Jesus, you know, this love that God asks us to have for him is not a common love. It's not one love among many loves. It is a soul-pervading, self-sacrificing, all-or-nothing love in which Jesus is the, the core around which our whole life revolves. Now, don't get me wrong. I, as you might imagine, being computer, from the computer background, I'm not about this whole touchy-feely thing. I'm not talking about a constant feeling of ecstasy in, in terms of loving God. In fact, one of my favorite definitions for joy is a calm delight. Wouldn't you just love to have a calm delight in the Almighty God all the time, no matter what the circumstances? Okay, so, yes, we do want that, but now, where does that love come from? <coughs> you know what's interesting about this command to obey God, with, I mean, to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength? What's interesting about this command is that it is a command that we cannot possibly obey. Right? We don't have any knob in our life like a burner on a stove that we can turn up our love for God. We don't control our love directly. So how do we get this love for God, this passionate love for God? Well, the Bible says love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Okay, now we have a little bit of a problem. Because here we have God demanding that we love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength longing that we will love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, and he's the source of that love, then why would our love be lukewarm? Why would our love ever be lukewarm? And yet that was my experience. My love for God for most of my life was tepid at best. Even though I was a seventh, fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist, even though I grew up in a good Seventh-day Adventist Christian home, even though I had wonderful church families and good Christian schools, my love for God never blossomed. One of the reasons why I know that is because I never really enjoyed prayer. You know, prayer is talking to Jesus as a friend. It's, it's talking to our Almighty Father in Heaven. And yet I found it difficult to do. 
I found it difficult to pray for any length of time. Jesus could pray all night and enjoy it and look forward to it and want to do it again, and I found it difficult to pray for 10 minutes at a time. And, you know, I began to look for excuses sometimes to shorten my devotional time or even skip it completely. My friends, if we say that we love somebody, but we find ourselves looking for excuses to avoid them, we probably need to reevaluate our love relationship. And that's exactly the case in my experience. So, what was wrong? Why didn't the plant of love grow in my heart all those many years? You know, if you ask most people, how can I grow my love for God, what will they tell you? They'll tell you you need more Bible study, more prayer, and more soul witnessing, right? Soul winning. And it's true. These are three of the most powerful, love-enhancing tools in the Holy Spirit's arsenal to help us to grow in our love for God. We cannot have a love relationship with Jesus without those three important things. But if I find it hard to pray, will forcing myself to pray in and of itself make my love for God flourish? These three things, the Bible study and the prayer and the witnessing, they are often compared to the sunshine and the nutritious soil and the rain that makes a plant grow. But isn't there something else that we need for a plant to grow? If these three things by themselves were all that we need, well, then think about the Pharisees for a second. The Pharisees were praying on street corners. They loved to pray. They loved to pray long prayers. No problem. They made an art out of studying the Bible. They went around on sea and land to make proselytes, and Jesus said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So, if prayer and Bible study and witnessing are all we need, then the Pharisees should have loved Jesus deeply and passionately, and yet we know that's not the same, that's not what happened. So what else do we need? Besides the ideal growing environment, what else do we need in order for a plant to grow? We need a seed. Without a seed, no matter how good the growing environment, nothing's going to grow. And that's what I needed in my life. So where does that seed come from? Right? The Bible says love comes from God. God is the only one who can plant that seed in our hearts. Only God can do it. What's the rest of that? Only you and I can let him. Only God can do it. Only you and I can, lead, can let him. So why did I re fail to receive that seed deep in my heart? <clears throat> the key can be found in the story of the rich young ruler. Here was a guy who came to Jesus with a sincere desire to be saved. And do you think Jesus wanted to save him? Do you think God wanted more than anything else to save that young man? Yes, absolutely. The Bible records that Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. What was that one thing, do you think, that the rich young ruler lacked? What was that one thing? Well, we don't have to guess. One of my favorite authors puts it this way. Christ read the ruler's heart. Only one thing he lacked, but that was a vital principle. He needed the love of God in the soul. This lack, unless supplied, would prove fatal to him. His whole nature would become corrupted. By indulgence, selfishness would strengthen. That he might receive the love of God, his supreme love of self must be surrendered. That was the key that I missed for most of my Christian life.
The key to loving God is to let him plant that love deeply within the surrendered soil of our lives. God will not force his love upon us. God will not force us to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. If we want to love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength, then we have to give God all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. That was the key that I was missing for most of my life. Supreme love for God and unselfish love for one another, this is the best gift that our Heavenly Father can bestow. This love is not an impulse, but a divine principle, a permanent power. The unconsecrated heart cannot originate or produce it. Only in the heart where Jesus reigns is it found. My friends, the key to that deep love for God is to make God ruler of your heart. To let him open up your heart and plant that seed deeply in you. Christ read the ruler's heart. Only one thing he lacked, but that was a vital principle. He needed the love of God in the soul. That he might receive the love of God, his supreme love of self must be surrendered. Now there's something very interesting about the story of the, of the rich young ruler. You know, a lot of times we say um, God accepts us just as we are, right? Well, why didn't Jesus accept the rich young ruler just as he was? Why did, did uh, Jesus not say to the rich young ruler, Hey, you've got a love problem. I have the solution. Come and follow me and we'll work on it together. That's not what Jesus said. No, Jesus said, go away, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and then come back and we'll talk. What was that about? Doesn't God just accept us just as we are? Yes, my friends, he does accept us just as we are. But he can't accept us just as we are unless we're willing to be changed into something different. And that was the rich young ruler's problem. He didn't want to change. He was not willing to let God transform his life. And so coming to Jesus wouldn't have helped. In other words, Jesus was not saying to the rich young ruler, go and love me more, and then come back and we'll talk. Jesus was saying, go and do this seemingly impossible thing that I will help you with, and it will help you get rid of the things that are keeping you from loving me only. God wanted the rich young ruler to get rid of the things that were keeping him from loving God with all of his heart and mind and soul and strength. In other words, what Jesus was asking of the rich young ruler was the ultimate bank transfer. The transfer of his treasure from earth to heaven. And one of my favorite passages in all of scripture that talks about this beautiful transfer of our treasure is found in the book of Job. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent and place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks, then the Almighty will be your gold. Isn't that an incredible passage? The Almighty will be your gold and choice silver to you. For then you will delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. My friends, if we want God to be our treasure, the key is to throw our treasure in the dust so that he can be our gold and choice silver to us. And that's exactly what Jesus was asking the rich young ruler to do. So that's our key phrase this afternoon. The key to love is the surrender of self. If I wish to love God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and with all my strength, I must give God all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, and all my strength. Let's read that out loud together, shall we? Wake ourselves up a little bit from the food. The key to love is the surrender of self. If I wish to love God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and with all my strength, 
I must give God all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, and all my strength. My friends, what do you think would have happened if Jesus had said to the rich young ruler, okay, come and follow me, we'll work on this problem together. What do you think would have happened? We probably don't have to guess. He would have had another Judas on his hands, right? We are told about Judas that he loved the great teacher and desired to be with him. He felt a desire to be changed in character and life, and he hoped to experience this through connecting himself with Jesus. And the Savior did not repulse Judas. He gave him a place among the twelve. He trusted him with the work of an evangelist. He endowed him with power to heal the sick and to cast out devils. But, and this is the, the, the worst word in all of Christendom, but Judas did not come to the point of surrendering himself fully to Jesus. The rich young ruler was like Judas. He was unwilling to surrender himself, to give himself wholeheartedly. We are told that the rich young ruler wanted the heavenly treasure, but he wanted also the temporal advantages his riches would bring him. He was sorry that such conditions existed. He desired eternal life, but he was not willing to make the sacrifice. The cost of eternal life seemed too great, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. My friends, all of my life I was the rich young ruler. I also had these temporal possessions that I was not willing to get rid of. It wasn't money, but nonetheless they were treasures. Treasures that I was not willing to let go of. And it was these treasures that kept God from being my treasure. Do you know why God wants us to transfer our treasure from earth to heaven? Do you know why? Because where your treasure is, there your, right? There your heart is too. We need to have our treasure in heaven. The good news is that God got through to me. He finally, miraculously, and I'll be sharing my testimony a little bit more, my story next weekend. He finally got through to me. He got me to the place where I was ready and willing to actually make that commitment and say, Lord, okay, my life, 100% yours. Do you know what happened immediately after making that commitment? I began to truly enjoy prayer. I began to relish it. I began to prioritize it, to look forward to it. It was truly the best part of my day. My whole prayer experience was transformed overnight. It wasn't because of a new prayer technique or a prayer seminar, although those had their place. It was because for the first time in my life, probably, I had let God convert me. I had let the Holy Spirit take over my life and become Almighty God in me. No longer was I pushing Him away by these little choices that I knew were not God's choices. But I always used to say to myself, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And besides, God hasn't finished with me yet. And it was those little choices that was keeping Him away. I was not willing to surrender those to God. Now, there's another important aspect of this, this story of the rich young ruler that we have to look at very quickly, and that is the cost of eternal life. What? The cost of eternal life? Anybody have a problem with that? How many of you thought that, that eternal life was a free gift? All right, good, you should be raising your hands, right? The Bible's on your side. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So... Why didn't Jesus just say to the rich young ruler, hey, here is eternal life, it's free, enjoy. Why did Jesus set the bar so high that the rich young ruler was unwilling to pay it? Do you remember the story of the pearl of great price? 
Jesus is the pearl of great price. And when the merchant found it, what did he do? The Bible says that when he found one pearl of great price, he went and sold what? All that he had and bought it. Doesn't this kind of sound like what Jesus was asking the rich young ruler to do? In other words, Jesus is not asking the rich young ruler to do anything. He's not asking each one of us to do. To make that ultimate treasure transfer from the things of earth to the things of heaven. To get rid of all of our most precious possessions on earth so that he can be our gold and choice silver to us. In the parable, the pearl is not represented as a gift. The merchantman bought it at the price of all that he had. Many question the meaning of this. Since Christ is represented in the scriptures as a gift, he is a gift, but only to those who give themselves, soul, body, and spirit, to him without reserve. Isn't that an interesting statement? And she goes on. We are to give ourselves to Christ to live a life of willing obedience to all his requirements. All that we are, all the talents and capabilities we possess are the Lord's to be consecrated to his service. When we thus give ourselves wholly to him, Christ with all the treasures of heaven gives himself to us. We obtain the pearl of great price. Isn't that an incredible statement? When we thus give ourselves wholly to him, Christ with all the treasures of heaven gives himself to us. But what has to happen first? First, he is a gift but only to those who give themselves soul, body, and spirit to him without reserve. So my friends, eternal life is a free gift that costs everything. Kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, isn't that kind of deceptive? To say, hey, eternal life's a free gift and it'll cost you everything. No, it's not, and I'll tell you why. I'd like to share with you a modern illustration that maybe can help us out. When NASA closed down his space shuttle program, they gave away the space shuttles, free of charge. Billion dollar spaceships, the pride of the American space program, given away free of charge. So why don't I have one in my backyard? I think my kids would have liked that. Hey guys, we have a space shuttle in our backyard, come and visit us, right, you know? They would have liked that. Well, there are several, there are several reasons why I don't have a space shuttle in my backyard. Several million reasons why. You see, in order to make a space shuttle safe for your kids to be around, you have to get rid of the, the poisonous substances and hazardous materials that make up a large part of a space rocket. This process is called decommissioning, and it will cost you $28 million. Then, of course, you have to fly the space shuttle on that big modified 747. You have to fly it into your backyard. Of course, you're going to need a 10,000-foot runway for that. How many of you have a 10,000-foot runway in your backyard already? Anybody? I have to ask because some people do. In fact, Jared, don't you have a 10,000? Yeah, Jared has one in his backyard in Australia, right? <laughs> but if you don't have one of those, then you're going to need about $5.8 million to build one. And then, of course, in order to store this national treasure, you're going to have to have a temperature and humidity-controlled environment to store it and to display it. In other words, this free gift is going to cost you $42 million, plus or minus. 42 million good reasons why I don't have one. The gift is priceless. But in order to receive that gift, it costs a fortune. It's the same way with Jesus. Jesus is the priceless treasure. But not just anyone can receive that gift. Only those who give themselves, soul, body, and spirit to him without reserve, can receive Jesus as the free gift into their heart. 
The key to loving God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength is to give God all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Do we enjoy God? Do we relish Him and our time with Him? Do we, do we love to tell other people about Him? Or is our love lukewarm? Do you know what lukewarm is? Lukewarm is hot with a little bit of cold mixed in. And for most of my life, I was unwilling to let God turn off that cold water faucet so that I could be hot for Him. And guess what? It's a choice. It's a choice to let God turn off the cold water so that we can be on fire for Him. There is a cost to loving Jesus with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, and it is everything. But Jesus is worth it. Amen. Are we willing to pay the cost? Are we willing to surrender ourselves to Him unreservedly, unresistingly, unrelentingly, and irretrievably? By God's grace, each one of us will be willing. And each one of us then will have that seed of love planted deep in our hearts and it will blossom into a tree of love that will share God with the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of having the seed of love in our hearts. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you're willing to put it there. That you're willing to give us this passionate love for you to make us on fire for you so that we can enjoy the Christian life to the fullest. I pray, Father, that you will, let, you will help us to do whatever it takes to let you do whatever you want so that we can love you with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.